this one one of your favourites? If you listen to us on Spotify, you can follow the link in the show notes to hear all the episodes in this book in one playlist so you can spend more time settling down for the night and less time scrolling. Sweet dreams. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me tonight because this evening we're beginning our first book of 2023, Anne of Avonlea, the sequel to our fan favourite, Anne of Green Gables, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Ms. Montgomery was a prolific Canadian author. She set much of her work in and around Canada's smallest province, Prince Edward Island, including this series, which follows the adventures of the title character, Anne Shirley. The first book, Anne of Green Gables, which we have already read here on the Sleepy Bookshelf, was published in 1908 and quickly became a success. This sequel, Anne of Avonlea, came out one year later. I'm so excited to revisit Anne. I really hope you enjoy it. But before we begin, I want you to start to snuggle down in bed and get comfortable. Allow your mind to give in to your imagination as you follow the sound of my voice. Before you know it, you'll be fast asleep. If this is your first visit to the Sleepy Bookshelf, welcome. And don't worry if you drop off before I finish this part of the story. At the beginning of the next episode, I'll give you a thorough recap. That way... You can rest easy without worrying about missing anything important. Do keep in mind that all of the books here on this show are selected and edited to help you fall asleep. We always keep the plot lines, protagonists and antagonists, and moments of tension. We do remove anything that might be startling or upsetting to ensure you always get a good night's rest. And that's what makes this the sleepy bookshelf. As always, take some time to put the day behind you now. Inhale and have a nice big stretch. And on your exhale, just relax. Allow your limbs to fall heavy. Let go of any tension you're holding in your muscles. And with each exhale, sink deeper and deeper into your bed. Let's take one more deep breath. Hold it for a moment. And then exhale completely. Allowing any lingering thoughts just dissolve into the air. Now all you need to do is listen to the sound of my voice as you make your way into a peaceful sleep. And while you do that, I'll turn to the first pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 1. An Irate Neighbour A tall, slim girl, half past sixteen, with serious grey eyes and hair which her friends called auburn, had sat down on the broad red sandstone doorstep of a Prince Edward Island farmhouse one ripe afternoon in August firmly resolved 
to construe so many lines of Virgil. But an August afternoon, with blue hazes scarfing the harvest slopes, little winds whispering elfishly in the poplars, and a dancing slender of red poppies outflaming against the dark coppice of young firs in a corner of the cherry orchard was fitter for dreams than dead languages. The Virgil soon slipped unheeded to the ground, and Anne, her chin propped on her clasped hands, and her eyes on the splendid mass of fluffy clouds that were heaping up just over Mr. J. A. Harrison's house, like a great white mountain, was far away in a delicious world where a certain schoolteacher was doing a wonderful work, shaping the destinies of future statesmen and inspiring youthful minds and hearts with high and lofty ambitions. To be sure, if you came down to harsh facts, which must be confessed, and seldom did until she had to, it did not seem likely that there was much promising material for celebrities in Avonlea School. She could never tell what might happen if a teacher used her influence for good. Anne had certain rose-tinted ideals of what a teacher might accomplish if she only went the right way about it, and she was in the midst of a delightful scene forty years hence with a famous personage. Just exactly what he was to be famous for was left in convenient haziness, but Anne thought it would be rather nice to have him a college president or a Canadian premier, bowing low over her wrinkled hand and assuring her that it was she who had first kindled his ambition and that all his success in life was due to the lessons she had instilled so long ago in Avonlea School. This pleasant vision was shattered by a most unpleasant interruption. A demure little Jersey cow came scuttling down the lane, and five seconds later, Mr. Harrison arrived. If arrived be not too mild a term to describe the manner of his eruption into the yard, he bounced over the fence without waiting to open the gate, and angrily confronted astonished Anne, who had risen to her feet and stood looking at him in some bewilderment. Mr. Harrison was their new right-hand neighbour. She had never met him before, although she had seen him once or twice. In early April, before Anne had come home from Queen's, Mr. Robert Bell, whose farm adjoined the Cuthbert Place on the west, had sold out and moved to Charlottetown. His farm had been bought by a certain Mr. J.A. Harrison, whose name, and the fact that he was a New Brunswick man, were all that was known about him. But before he had been a month in Avonlea, he had won the reputation of being an odd person. A crank, Mrs. Rachel Lynde said. Mrs. Rachel was an outspoken lady, as those of you who may have already made her acquaintance will remember. Mr. Harrison was certainly different from other people, and that is the essential characteristic of a crank, as everybody knows. In the first place, he kept house for himself and had publicly stated that he wanted no fools of women around his diggings. Feminine Avonlea took its revenge 
by the gruesome tales it related about his housekeeping and cooking. He had hired little John Henry Carter of White Sands, and John Henry started the stories. For one thing, there was never any stated time for meals in the Harrison establishment. Mr. Harrison got a bite when he felt hungry, and if John Henry were around at the time, he came in for a share. But if he were not, he had to wait until Mr. Harrison's next hungry spell. John Henry mournfully averred that he would have starved to death if it wasn't that he got home on Sundays and got a good filling up, and that his mother always gave him a basket of grub to take back with him on Monday mornings. As for washing dishes, Mr. Harrison never made any pretense of doing it unless a rainy Sunday came. Then he went to work and washed them all at once in the rainwater hogshead and left them to drain dry. Again, Mr. Harrison was close when he was asked to subscribe to the Reverend Mr. Allen's salary. He said he'd wait and see how many dollars worth of good he got out of his preaching first. He didn't believe in buying a pig in a poke. And when Mrs. Lynde went to ask for a contribution to missions, and incidentally to see the inside of the house, he told her there were more heathens among the old women gossips in Avonlea than anywhere else he knew of and he'd cheerfully contribute to a mission for Christianizing them if she'd undertake it. Mrs. Rachel got herself away and said it was a mercy poor Mrs. Robert Bell was safe in her grave, for it would have broken her heart to see the state of her house in which she used to take so much pride. Why? She scrubbed the kitchen floor every second day, Mrs. Lynde told Marilla Cuthbert indignantly. And if you could see it now, I had to hold up my skirts as I walked across it. Finally, Mr. Harrison kept a parrot called Ginger. Nobody in Avonlea had ever kept a parrot before. Consequently, that proceeding was considered barely respectable. And such a parrot. If you took John Henry Carter's word for it, never was such an unholy bird. It swore terribly. Mrs. Carter would have taken John Henry away at once if she had been sure she could get another place for him. Besides, Ginger had bitten a piece right out of the back of John Henry's neck one day when he had stooped down too near the cage. Mrs. Carter showed everybody the mark when the luckless John Henry went home on Sundays. All these things flashed through Anne's mind as Mr. Harrison stood, quite speechless, with wrath apparently before her. In his most amiable mood, Mr. Harrison could not have been considered a handsome man. He was short and fat and bald, now with his round face purple with rage and his prominent blue eyes almost sticking out of his head, Anne thought he was really the ugliest person she had ever seen. All at once, Mr. Harrison found his voice. I'm not going to put up with this, he spluttered. Not a day longer, do you hear, miss? Bless my soul, this is the third time, miss, the third time. Patience has ceased to be a virtue, miss. I warned your aunt about the last time not to let it occur again, and she's let it. She's done it. Does she mean by it? That's what I want to know. That's what I'm here about, miss. Will you explain what the trouble is? Asked Anne in her most dignified manner. 
She'd been practicing it considerably of late to have it in good working order when school began, but it had no apparent effect on the irate J.A. Harrison. Trouble is, bless my soul, trouble enough, I should think. The trouble is, miss, that I found that Jersey cow of your aunt's in my oats again, not half an hour ago. The third time, mark you. I found her in last Tuesday, and I found her in yesterday. I came here and told your aunt not to let it occur again. She has let it occur again. Where's your aunt, miss? I just want to see her for a minute and give her a piece of my mind. Piece of J.A. Harrison's mind, miss. If you mean Miss Marilla Cuthbert, she's not my aunt, and she's gone down to East Grafton to see a distant relative of hers who is very ill, said Anne, with due increase of dignity at every word. I'm very sorry that my cow should have broken into your oats. She's my cow, and not Miss Cuthbert's. Matthew gave her to me three years ago when she was a little calf, and he brought her from Mr. Bell. Sorry, miss. Sorry is it going to help matters any. You'd better go and look at the havoc that animal has made in my oats. Trampled them from center to circumference, miss. I'm very sorry, repeated Anne firmly. But perhaps if you kept your fences in better repair, Dolly may not have broken in. It is your part of the fence line that separates your oat field from our pasture, and I noticed the other day that it was not in very good condition. My fence is all right, snapped Mr. Harrison, angrier than ever at this carrying of the war into the enemy's country. The jail fence couldn't keep a demon of a cow like that out, and I can tell you, you bread-headed snippet, that if that cow is yours, as you say, you'd better be employed in watching her out of other people's grain than in sitting round reading yellow-covered novels. With a scathing glance at the innocent, tan-covered Virgil by Anne's feet, Something at that moment was red besides Anne's hair, which had always been a tender point with her. I'd rather have red hair than none at all, except a little fringe around my ears, she flashed. The shot told, for Mr. Harrison was really very sensitive about his bald head. His anger choked him up again, and he could only glare speechlessly at Anne, who recovered her temper and followed up her advantage. I can make an allowance for you, Mr. Harrison, because I have an imagination. I can easily imagine how very tiring it must be to find a cow in your oats. I shall not cherish any hard feelings against you for the things you've said. I promise you, Dolly shall never break into your oats again. I give you my word of honour on that point. Well, mind you, she doesn't, muttered Mr. Harrison in a somewhat subdued tone. But he stamped off angrily enough, and Anne heard him growling to himself until he was out of earshot. Grievously disturbed in mind, Anne marched across the yard and shut the naughty jersey up in the milking pen. She can't possibly get out of that unless she tears the fence down, she reflected. She looks pretty quiet now. Dare say she's sickened herself on those oats. Wish I'd sold her to Mr. Shearer when he wanted her last week. I thought it was just as well to wait until we had the auction of the stock and let them all go together. I believe it is true, Mr. Harrison, being a crank. Certainly there's nothing of the kindred spirit about him. Anne had always a weather eye open for kindred spirit. Marilla Cuthbert was driving into the yard as Anne returned from the house, and the latter 
flew to get tea ready. They discussed the matter at the tea table. I'll be glad when the auction is over, said Marilla. It's too much responsibility having so much stock about the place and nobody but that unreliable Martin to look after them. He's never come back yet, and he promised that he would certainly be back last night if I give him the day off to go to his aunt's funeral. Don't know how many aunts he has got, I'm sure. That's the fourth that's died since he hired here a year ago. We're more than thankful when the crop is in and Mr. Barry takes over the farm. Oh, we'll have to keep Dolly shut up in the pen till Martin comes, for she must be put in the back pasture and the fences there have to be fixed. I declare it is a world of trouble, as Rachel says. Here's poor Mary Keith, dying. What is to become of those two children of hers is more than I know. She has a brother in British Columbia. She's written to him about them, but she hasn't heard anything yet. What's the children like? How old are they? Six past. They're twins. Oh, I've always been especially interested in twins, ever since Mrs. Hammond had so many, said Anne eagerly. Are they pretty? Goodness, you couldn't tell. They were too dirty. Davy had been out making mud pies and Dora went out to call him in. Davy pushed her head first into the biggest pie and then, because she cried, he got into it himself and wallowed in it to show her it was nothing to cry about. Mary said Dora was really a very good child, but that Davy was full of mischief. He's never had any bringing up, you might say. His father died when he was a baby. Mary has been sick almost every day since. Always sorry for children that have no bringing up, said Anne soberly. You know, I hadn't had any until you took me in hand. But their uncle will look after them. So what relation is Mrs. Keith to you? Mary? None in the world. It was her husband. He was our third cousin. There's Mrs. Lynde coming through the yard. I thought she'd be up to hear about Mary. Don't tell her about Mr. Harrison and the cow, implored Anne. Marilla promised, but the promise was quite unnecessary, for Mrs. Lynde was no sooner fairly seated than she had said, I saw Mr. Harrison chasing your jersey out of his oats today when I was coming home from Carmody. I thought he looked pretty mad. Did he make much of a rumpus? Anne and Marilla furtively exchanged amused smiles. Few things in Avonlea ever escaped Mrs. Lynde. It was only that morning Anne had said, If you went to your own room at midnight, locked the door, pulled down the blind and sneezed, Mrs. Lynde would ask you the next day how your cold was. I believe he did, admitted Marilla. I was away. He gave Anne a piece of his mind. I think he's a very disagreeable man, said Anne, with a resentful toss of her ruddy head. You never said a truer word, said Mrs. Rachel solemnly. I knew there'd be trouble when Robert Bell sold his place to a New Brunswick man. That's what. I don't know what Avonlea is coming to. So many strange people rushing into it. It'll soon not be safe to go to sleep in our beds. Why? What other strangers are coming in? Asked Marilla. Haven't you heard? Well, there's a family of Donalds, for one thing. They've rented Peter Sloane's old house. Peter has hired the man to run his mill. They belong down east and nobody knows anything about them. Then that shiftless Timothy Cotton family are going to move up from White Sands and they'll simply be a burden on the public. He's in consumption when he isn't stooling, and his wife is a slack, twisted creature that can't turn her hand to a thing. She washes her dishes, sitting down. Mrs. George Pye has taken her husband's orphan nephew, Anthony Pye. He'll be going to school to you, Anne, so you may expect trouble, that's what. 
And you have another strange pupil too. Paul Irving is coming from the States to live with his grandmother. You remember his father, Marilla, Stephen Irving, and that jilted Lavender Lewis over at Grafton. I don't think he jilted her. It was a quarrel. I suppose there was blame on both sides. Well, anyway, he didn't marry her, and she has been as queer as possible ever since, they say, living all by herself in that little stone house she calls Echo Lodge. Stephen went off to the States and went into business with his uncle, married a Yankee. He's never been home since, though his mother has been up to see him once or twice. His wife died two years ago, and he's sending the boy home to his mother for a spell. He's ten years old. I don't know if he'll be a very desirable pupil. Never can tell about those Yankees. Mrs. Lynde looked upon all people who had the misfortune to be born or brought up elsewhere than in Prince Edward Island with a decided, can any good thing come out of Nazareth air? They might be good people, of course, but you were on the safe side in doubting it. She had a special prejudice against Yankees. Her husband had been cheated out of $10 by an employer for whom he had once worked in Boston, and neither angels, nor principalities, nor powers could have convinced Mrs. Rachel that the whole United States was not responsible for it. Avonlea school won't be the worst for a little new blood, said Marilla dryly. If this boy is anything like his father, he'll be all right. Stephen Irving was the nicest boy that was ever raised in these parts, though some people did call him proud. I should think Mrs. Irving would be very glad to have the child. She's been very lonesome since her husband died. Oh, the boy may be well enough, but he'll be different from Avonlea children, said Mrs. Rachel, as if that clinched the matter. Mrs. Rachel's opinions concerning any person place or thing were always warranted to wear. What's this I hear about you going to start up a village improvement society, Anne? I was just talking it over with some of the girls and boys at the last debating club, said Anne, flushing. I thought it would be rather nice, and so do Mr. and Mrs. Allen. Lots of villagers have them now. Well... You'll get into no end of hot water if you do. Better leave it alone, Anne, that's what. People don't like being improved. Oh, we're not going to try to improve the people. It's Avonlea itself. There are lots of things which might be done to make it prettier. For instance, if we could coax Mr. Levi Bolter to pull down that dreadful old house on his upper farm, wouldn't that be an improvement? Certainly would admitted Mrs. Rachel. That old ruin has been an eyesore to the settlement for years. But if you improvers can coax Levi Balter to do anything for the public that he isn't going to be paid for doing, may I be there to see and hear the process, that's what. I don't want to discourage you, Anne, for there may be something in your idea. I suppose you did get it out of some rubbishy Yankee magazine but you'll have your hands full with your school and I advise you as a friend not to bother with your improvements, that's what. But there, I know you'll go ahead with it if you've set your mind on it. You always want to carry a thing through somehow. Something about the firm outlines of Anne's lips told that Mrs. Rachel was not far astray in this estimate. Anne's heart was bent on forming the Improvement Society. Gilbert Blythe, who was to teach in White Sands, but would always be home on Friday night to Monday morning, was enthusiastic about it, and most of the other folks were willing to go in for anything that meant occasional meetings and consequently some fun. As for what the improvements were to be, Nobody had any very clear idea, except Anne and Gilbert. They had talked them over and planned them out until an ideal Avonlea existed in their minds, 
if nowhere else. Mrs. Rachel had still another item of news. They've given the Carmody School to a Priscilla Grant. Didn't you go to Queens with a girl of that name, Anne? Yes, indeed. Priscilla to teach at Carmody. How perfectly lovely, said Anne, her grey eyes lighting up until they looked like evening stars, causing Mrs. Lynde to wonder anew she would ever get it settled to her satisfaction whether Anne Shirley were really a pretty girl or not. Chapter 2 Selling in Haste and Repenting at Leisure Anne drove over to Carmody on a shopping expedition the next afternoon and took Diana Barry with her. Diana was, of course, a pledged member of the Improvement Society, and the two girls talked about little else all the way to Carmody and back. The very first thing we ought to do when we get started is to have that hall painted, said Diana as they drove past the Avonlea Hall, a rather shabby building set down in a wooded hollow with spruce trees putting it about on all sides. It's a disgraceful-looking place, and we must attend it even before we try to get Mr. Levi Balder to pull his house down. Father says we'll never succeed in doing that. Levi Balder is too mean to spend the time it would take. Perhaps he'll let the boys take it down, if they promise to haul the boards and split them up for him for kindling wood, said Anne, hopefully must do our best and be content to go slowly at first. Can't expect to improve everything all at once. We'll have to educate public sentiment first, of course. Diana wasn't exactly sure what educating public sentiment meant, but it sounded fine, and she felt rather proud that she was going to belong to a society with such an aim in view. I thought of something last night that we could do, Anne. You know that three-cornered piece of ground where the roads from Carmody and Newbridge and White Sands meet? It's all grown over with young spruce. But wouldn't it be nice to have them cleared out? Just leave two or three birch trees that are on it. Splendid, agreed Anne gaily. And have a nice rustic seat put under the birches. And when spring comes... We'll have a flower bed made in the middle of it and plant geraniums. Yes, only we'll have to devise some way of getting old Mrs. Hiram Sloan to keep her cow off the road, or she'll eat our geraniums up, laughed Diana. I begin to see what you mean about educating public sentiment, Anne. There's the old Boulder house now. Did you ever see such a rookery? And perched right close to the road, too. An old house with its windows gone always makes me think of something dead with its eyes plucked out. I think an old, deserted house is such a sad sight, said Anne dreamily. It always seems to me to be thinking about its past, mourning for its old-time joys. Marilla says that a large family was raised in that house long ago, that it was a real pretty place, with a lovely garden, roses climbing all over it. It was full of little children and laughter and songs. Now it's empty. Nothing ever wanders through it but the wind. How lonely and sorrowful it must feel. Perhaps they'll all come back on moonlit nights ghosts of the little children of long ago, and that rose is in the songs, and for a little while, the old house can dream that it is young and joyous again. Diana shook her head. I never imagined things like that about places now, Anne. Don't you remember how cross Mother and Marilla were when we imagined ghosts into the haunted wood? To this day, I can't go through that bush comfortably after dark. 
If I began imagining things about the old Balter house, I'd be frightened to pass it too. Besides, those children aren't dead. They're all grown up and doing well. And one of them is a butcher. And flowers and songs don't have ghosts anyhow. Anne smothered a little sigh. She loved Diana dearly, and they had always been good comrades. She had long ago learned that when she wandered into the realm of fancy, she must go alone. The way to it was by an enchanted path where not even her dearest might follow her. A thunder shower came up while the girls were at Carmody. It did not last long, however, and the drive home through lanes where the raindrops sparkled on the boughs and the little leafy valleys where the drenched ferns gave out spicy odours was delightful. But just as they turned into the Cuthbert Lane, Anne saw something that spoiled the beauty of the landscape for her. Before them, on the right, extended Mr. Harrison's broad, grey-green field of late oats, wet and luxuriant. And there, standing squarely in the middle of it, up to her sleek sides in the lush growth, and blinking at them calmly over the intervening tassels was a Jersey cow. Anne dropped the reins and stood up with a tightening of the lips that boded no good to the predatory quadruped. Not a word, said she, but she climbed nimbly down over the wheels and whisked across the fence before Diana understood what had happened. Come back, called the latter as soon as she found her voice. You'll ruin your dress in that wet grain. Ruin it. Oh, she doesn't hear me. Well, she'll never get that cow out by herself. I must go and help her, of course. Anne was charging through the grain like a mad thing. Diana hopped briskly down tied the horse securely to a post, turned the skirt of her pretty gingham dress over her shoulders, mounted the fence, and started in pursuit of her frantic friend. She could run faster than Anne, who was hampered by her clinking and drenched skirt, and soon overtook her. Behind them, they left a trail that would break Mr. Harrison's heart when he should see it. Anne, for mercy's sake, stop, panted poor Diana. I'm right out of breath, and you are wet to the skin. I must get this cow up before Mr. Harrison sees her, said Anne. I don't care if I'm drowned if we can only do that. But the Jersey cow appeared to see no good reason for being hustled out of her luscious browsing ground. No sooner had the two breathless girls got near her than she turned and bolted squarely for the opposite corner of the field. Head her off, said Anne. Run, Diana, run! Diana did run. Anne tried to, and the wicked Jersey went around the field as if she were possessed. Privately, Diana thought she was. It was a full ten minutes before they headed her off and drove her through the corner gap into the Cuthbert Lane. There is no denying that Anne was in anything but an angelic temper at that precise moment nor did it soothe her in the least to behold a buggy halted just outside the lane, wherein sat Mr. Shearer of Carmody and his son, both of whom wore a broad smile. I guess you'd better have sold me that cow when I wanted to buy her last week, Anne, chuckled Mr. Shearer. Sell her to you now if you want her, 
said her flushed and disheveled owner. We may have her this very minute. Done. I'll give you twenty for her as I offered before, and Jim here can drive her right away to Carmody. She'll go to town with the rest of the shipment this evening. Mr. Reed of Brighton wants a Jersey cow. Five minutes later, Jim Shearer and the Jersey cow were marching up the road, and impulsive Anne was driving along the Green Gables Lane with her twenty dollars. What will Marilla say? asked Diana. Oh, she won't care. Dolly was my own cow. It isn't likely she'd bring more than twenty dollars at the auction. Oh, but oh dear. If Mr. Harrison sees that grain, he will know she has been in again. And after my giving my word of honor that I'd never let it happen. Well, it has taught me a lesson not to give my word of honor about cows. Cow that could jump over or break through our milk pen fence couldn't be trusted anywhere. Marilla had gone down to Mrs. Lynn's, and when she returned, knew all about Dolly's sale and transfer, for Mrs. Lynde had seen most of the transaction from her window and guessed the rest. I suppose it's just as well she's gone. Oh, you do things in a dreadful, headlong fashion, Anne. I don't see how she got out of the pen, though. She must have broken some boards off. I didn't think of looking, said Anne. But I'll go and see now. Martin has never come back yet. Perhaps some more of his aunts have died. I think it's something like Mr. Peter Sloan and the octogenarians. The other evening... Mrs. Sloan was reading a newspaper, and she said to Mr. Sloan, I see here that another octogenarian has just died. What is an octogenarian, Peter? And Mr. Sloan said he didn't know, that they must be very sickly creatures, for he never heard tell of them, but they were dying. That's the way with Martin's aunts. Marilla was looking over Anne's Carmody purchases, when she heard a shrill shriek in the barnyard. A minute later, Anne dashed into the kitchen, wringing her hands. And Shirley, what's the matter now? Oh, Marilla, whatever should I do? This is terrible, and it's all my fault. Will I ever learn to stop and reflect a little before doing reckless things? Mrs. Linda always told me I would do something dreadful someday, and now I've done it. Anne, you're the most exasperating girl. What is it you've done? Sold Mr. Harrison's Jersey cow. The one he brought from Mr. Bell to Mr. Shearer. Dolly is out in the milking pen this very minute. Anne Shirley, are you dreaming? I only wish I was. There's no dream about it, though it's very like a nightmare. And Mr. Harrison's cow is in Charlottetown by this time. Oh, Marilla, I thought I'd finished getting into scrapes. And here I am in the very worst one I ever was in my life. What can I do? Do? There's nothing to do, child, except to go and see Mr. Harrison about it. We can offer him our jersey in exchange if he doesn't want to take the money. It's just as good as his. I'm sure he'll be awfully cross and disagreeable about it, though, moaned Dan. I dare say he will. Seems to be an irritable sort of man. I'll go and explain it to him if you like. No, indeed. Not as mean as that, exclaimed Dan. This is all my fault. I'm certainly not going to let you take my punishment. I'll go myself. I'll go at once. The sooner it's over, the better, for it will be terribly humiliating. Poor Anne got her hat and her $20 and was passing out when she happened to glance through the open pantry door. On the table reposed a nut cake which she had baked that morning. The 
particularly toothsome concoction, iced with pink icing and adorned with walnuts. Anne had intended it for Friday evening, when the youth of Avonlea were to meet at Green Gables to organise the Improvement Society. But what were they compared to the justly offended Mr. Harrison? Anne thought the cake ought to soften the heart of any man, especially one who had to do his own cooking, and she promptly popped it into a box. She would take it to Mr. Harrison as a peace offering. That is, if he gives me a chance to say anything at all, she thought ruefully as she climbed the lane fence and started on a short cut across the fields, golden in the light of the dreamy August evening. I know just how people feel who are being led to an execution. (laughs) 